Welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up for liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white folks who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Margaret Ernst. In the words of a friend who recently described me, I tend to be extraordinarily goofy, and I try to be thoughtful often at the same time. I was born and raised in and have spent most of my life in the Northeast. Now I'm living in the South while I'm in divinity school in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm involved in various struggles for justice in Nashville, but I learned what I know from communities that mentored and nourished me in organizing, activism, ministry, and love in Philadelphia. I'm dedicated to fighting racism because I believe that, as Anne Braden said, my life depends on it. I'm also involved with the Nashville chapter of Showing Up for Racial Justice, a national network of groups and individuals organizing white people against racism. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith. I'm recording this podcast today in Nashville though admittedly my mind has been elsewhere a lot over the past month. I just got married up in Philly three weeks ago, though it feels like three days ago. I'm still riding the high of the overwhelming love that our family and community showed for me and for my partner. While I think back on the total delightful chaos of that day and the days that surrounded it. I've really been letting my heart and body relish in the friendships and relationships that sustain me and shamelessly diving into the wells of joy in my life. You should too. However, wherever, whenever you can, get that joy. Because whatever you may tell yourself on some days, we need that for resistance too. But to be honest, and like I'm sure is true for many of you, stationed right next door to these wells of joy in my heart is a lot of fear, sadness, and horror. In Nashville, where I live, people are getting detained at check-ins with ICE and scheduled for deportation. Yesterday, in a smaller city, about 30 minutes away, an Islamic center was vandalized with bacon smeared on the door handles and expletives written on the side. There's more breaking news about Trump ties with Russia today. I read the details and notice that I'm getting numb to feeling shocked and outraged about the very real possibility of our 
president having colluded with a major power to win our election. What else am I adjusting to, I wonder? What else runs the risk of becoming normal if I'm not careful to keep my heart pulsing and alive? Will I adjust to police protecting the KKK at a rally? To friends getting picked up by immigration? To nooses strung in public places meant to create terror and a sign, a sign that says don't challenge the white race's order or there will be blood. These are scary times. Jesus' times were scary too. So let's see what our text has to say to us in this scary time, here and now. Testament text for this week is one of Jesus's biggest hits, the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower has often been the perfect parable for evangelists and Sunday school teachers. It's explained right there in the text, isn't it? The parable seems to provide a pretty clear map of spiritual progress towards salvation, with the different soil types corresponding to readiness of people's hearts to receive the word of the kingdom of God and to grow in faith. Another common interpretation is that the parable tells us about the overflowing grace of God, because the sower, understood as Christ or God, is sowing the word so extravagantly that whether your heart is rocky or whether it's good for growth, it's going to get some of that word seed. I want to caution us, however, about over-spiritualizing the parable, even when the text itself seems to push so strongly in that direction. Given what Jesus says about how hard it is to understand the kingdom, I'm not sure if we should settle for easy answers. In fact, I definitely know we shouldn't settle for easy answers. I don't think that these interpretations are sufficient for the challenge that we face, especially as white folks, to resist racism and tyranny from within. I don't think they give us the courage to peel back the layers of all the ways white supremacy hurts and distorts us or to see the irreparable damage it's caused to people of color, to give us the courage to fight back. After all, Jesus did not get executed by the Roman Empire for having nice but mm, relatively boring stories. He did get crucified because the movement he was a part of and the community he represented posed a threat to a superpower so immense that its ruins can still be seen from space. That's what tells me that we need a way of reading the parable of the sower that shows what's so disruptive about it. We need a way of reading the parable that gives us the strength to rise up, to be resurrected in the face of the violence of our Rome, being who we are in our time and place today. I think it begins with staying a bit longer in the soil in the first part of this text rather than jumping into the explanation in verses 18 through 23. We're going to be playing in the dirt, trying to listen to what word is coming up and out of the soil. 
So here's a few questions for you to think about throughout the podcast to get you into practice. Where you call home, what's in the soil? Does anything grow out of it? What nutrients are there? What's toxic about it? What stories are there? Whose blood runs through it? Are there unknown graves that may lie in it? How did you get to this soil? Where did you travel from? Where did your people travel from? Or as Vincent Hardin might say, where did your mama's mama mama travel from? What will it take for the soil to become healthy and yield life? What will it take for it to support whole communities of life forms of all kinds? What is the struggle over the soil in your home now? Who nourishes it? Who profits from it? Who has been displaced from it? Who owns it? Whoever has ears, let them hear. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus spins this tale in Galilee, his home region. Galilee is in northern Israel. In Jesus' time, it was a rural area less influenced by the ways of Rome, more shaped by local culture and ancient people's traditions and it was a hotbed of resistance movement. Jesus is teaching by the sea, which is not too surprising. His favorite places in the Gospels are wild and deserted and not civilized. In the discourse of parables in Matthew 13, of which parable sower is the first, he's at the height of his ministry. The movement surrounding him is at its zenith, at least in terms of numbers. There's a crowd so big in this scene by the Sea of Galilee that he has to go out on a boat to get enough distance to speak to them all. We also know that people are already plotting to destroy Jesus and kill this movement. In the next chapter, we find out that Herod is starting to get worried about him, worried that Jesus might be the wild John the Baptist, who he had had executed, come back from the dead. So that's some information about Jesus here. But what about the crowd? Who's there? Well, of course, any kind of historical speculation about the Gospels is dubious. But it's safe to follow the logic of the text here and assume that if they could be following Jesus around, these folks were probably people who didn't own land. Everyday Galileans were mostly subsistence farmers, people who farmed because they had to, not as a luxury. They were also day laborers, like Jesus, maybe working on Roman imperial projects in Sepphoris, years after Rome had burned it to the ashes after the last Jewish revolt. 
Tenant farmers and day laborers were never able to truly profit from their work. They were burdened by debt, taxes, and tithes to the state and temple. For those who were tenant farmers in the time of Jesus, much like black families living in the South out of civil, civil war, the system was built so that it was practically impossible for a tenant to earn enough to own the land they worked on. So in this story about a sower, this a hundredfold yield that Jesus talks about happening when the sower sows seed on good soil, that's the kind of event that could turn a tenant farmer in Galilee's life upside down. It could mean freedom from the debt system placed on them to keep them in their place. A harvest of a hundred times could threaten the very system upon which the empire was reliant. Here is where Jesus' listeners may have leaned in and taken notice in an otherwise pretty normal story about soil science. A hundredfold is far more than what a farmer's call bumper crop or an unusually productive harvest. It's a more than usually productive harvest. We hear of an a hundred times fold yield like this one other time in scripture when Jacob is tilling his land in Genesis. It certainly would have been enough to provide real release from debt in a society that provided little forgiveness. It's not supposed to work like that, you see. When the system is supposed to kill you, it's when it's supposed to make you disposable, it's not supposed to provide any release. This is the kind of earthy miracle that would have signaled a new possibility for living. Perhaps this was a possibility that the people deeply remembered, a possibility that had been passed down to Jesus' Jewish audience through stories of being escaped slaves, wandering the desert, receiving bread from sky. Stories about ancestors who remembered living without answering to Babylonia or Assyria or Egypt or Rome. Ancestors who passed down memories of extravagant hospitality, hospitality of God, of the earth, and of a hospitable way of being together. It's the kind of crop yield that also might have been increasingly impossible in Roman-occupied territory. Archaeologists know that Roman farming practices likely contributed to the depletion of soil, as do ours today. More often than not, the degradation of soil goes hand-in-hand with empire. It goes hand-in-hand with the degradation of people. But what is so threatening about this parable is not just that good soil, something free and natural, could be one of the secrets to defying an order that oppressed most Jews of Jesus' time. In the explanation of the parable, we see Jesus implying that there's something common between human and soil. Jim Perkinson tells us that together with the parable of the mustard seed, this parable tells us the story of the kingdom of God as anti-imperial seed community. He says it's a story told to an audience of dispossessed Jews from Galilee who contained the deep memory of being Adama, made from earth, from soil, from dirt. That kind of radical memory and indigenous knowledge of humans' origins in the earth is often under siege throughout the Bible. The Bible is a text that shows the wrestlings of the people of Israel 
throughout changes in history, society, technology, throughout empires and kingdoms rising and falling, and ways of organizing themselves ever shifting. But there is that nagging strain of the memory of being people who are made of living earth, people made from the earth rather than above it, this memory of being seed and soil and plant people, a memory of being people who figured out how to live with no king taking tributes at all, memory of a garden where good soil could yield enough for everyone. Those memories go against all the logics that made Rome possible. I think what is so dangerous about the parable of the sower to Rome is that Jesus is waking up his neighbors in Galilee to who they are. He's waking them up to being people who have different instructions, some of them recorded in biblical texts and some not, instructions about how to live otherwise than Rome's ways or Babylon's ways or Assyria's ways. He's waking them up to the deepest wells of prophetic tradition in his religion. But before you get too excited, there's a catch. Because white folks are not the dispossessed, colonized Galileans in today's American empire. Nope. Sorry. In many ways, this parable, like many of Jesus's parables, are full of tips for how to survive and thrive when you're the one catching the most hell in a system. They have instructions to flip things upside down from below. And it's not for white people, maybe, or at least not directly. So what do we make of it? I think white folks in this text are a character that we don't see. I think it's okay to use a little bit of imagination here. So this character does show up in the Margaret Revised Standard Version. He doesn't make his way into the final cut of the Gospels. But I think that white folks are the Roman shopkeeper standing about 30 feet away from the edge of the crowd. He's appointed himself to stand watch at an outpost to keep an eye on this Galilean teaching to make sure things don't get too rowdy. He's ready to keep them in line if necessary and call the soldiers. White folks are the Roman shopkeeper who has been raised to believe in Rome who's got the rights and protections of Roman citizenship, which means a lot. Even if he doesn't have a lot, and even when times are bad, the shopkeeper knows that to get ahead in Rome is always to stay on top of the conquered peoples. No matter how miserable life can be, at least I'm not one of these Judean folk, he finds himself sometimes thinking. And I think what really happened is that the shopkeeper caught a little bit of what Jesus was saying on that boat whether or not he was trying to listen. He caught the part about seed falling on good soil and yielding crop with a hundredfold increase. He felt the electric energy in the crowd and saw the fists raised high. He tried to keep a straight face and remain cool-headed, but he felt himself flutter a little inside. Maybe there's something different, he thought. Maybe this doesn't have to be normal. And if he keeps listening, he hears the other parables. He hears the parable of the mustard seed, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like an invasive weed that starts with the tiniest seed. So small, it just is carried with the wind 
It plants itself and grows into an ecosystem of its own. He hears the parable of the leavened bread, where Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a woman who hides leaven in flour, and the bread expands and grows so much that it will be enough to feed everyone, so much that there is enough for everyone. We don't know what happened to the shopkeeper. We don't know whether he kept listening or whether he started moving closer to the crowd, nervous, but still moving. We don't know whether he too started following Jesus around and getting mixed up with this movement that was starting to get the authorities nervous. We don't know whether maybe instead he got uncomfortable and shut down. Maybe he passed it all off at as Jewish uppityness, as people who just need to get over it. We don't know. After all, he wasn't in the text to begin with, right? don't settle for easy answers and spiritualized explanations. Parables like the parable of the sower can teach us that standing in the way of systems that kill people is not just a mental commitment. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's a bodily thing. It's an earthy thing. It's about land and bread and power struggle. We too need a faith that literally, not just metaphorically, is of the soil. We need faith that calls up the deep memory of the land beneath us. We need faith that calls up the memory of our roots as people who come from earth. And we need faith that calls up the memory and taps even into our ancestral roots underneath and behind whiteness. My friend Yardena, after she visited Standing Rock, reported that one of the things that stuck with her most was that, were, that there were so many white folks drawn to that struggle because they felt rootless. When they asked indigenous activists and elders, what can I do to help? A response they heard was, find out who you are. You see, rootlessness and disconnection from your ancestors is actually necessary to the process of what some folks call settler colonialism. For many white people, our ancestors gained whiteness in coming to the U.S., and along the way lost local cultures, memories of soils our ancestors inhabited and left behind. Oftentimes that loss was intentional, as people tried to forget places that held great trauma. They pursued what felt like the new slate of America, even though, as we know, it was very old land, and those new opportunities were and still are at the great expense and, and suffering of indigenous folk and enslaved Africans. For other of our ancestors, that process of becoming white may have been unintentional, but it still happened. When people forget who they are at the deepest level, we can be exploited and we can be easily trained to exploit others. 
We've got a lot of work to do as white people to figure out how to be in relationship with each other, with our siblings of color, and with the soil beneath our feet in places where settler colonialism and plantation capitalism and slavery are, have all been poured into the dirt and run through the water. As we do that work, as we recover important memories of who God calls us to be in resistance to empire, in resistance to whiteness, we can support the work of black organizers to reclaim land. We can support indigenous organizers defending waterways and languages and lifeways. My action for you this week is to learn about the story of the soil and the struggles over land and power in your community. And start asking other white people in your life about their roots, places that their people came from. Invite others into this journey of finding out who we are. Research a people of color or indigenous-led group that is developing a restorative relationship with the earth. Support their actions. Bring that story into white spaces where it may not be welcome, where it may disrupt assumptions or ways of thinking. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript for this week will include resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search the word is resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. It's called We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for a movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014. It's being led by Minister Daryl Walker. We are very grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast.